Good morning. Good to see everybody. My name is Rodman Solcom. I'm one of the pastors. We right now are going through the life of David, which is found in First and Second Samuel. Um, one of the questions we're asking is, who is he? Such a prominent character in our Bible. Uh, this is what Saul asks. Who is this Bethlehemite? He asks it three times. Philistines ask it. Even David himself says, who am I in Psalm 8? Like all of us, David is a complex person. But in both the Old and New Testament, this is what God says about David. David is a man after my own heart. I can't think of anything that I would rather have said about, about me than, than that. To be a man, to be a woman after God's own heart. What I want to do today is I want to look at David, uh, not so much through the narrative, but through the Psalms. David writes over half of the Psalms. David writes these Psalms out of his own life experience. If you want a window into David's heart, into why God calls this guy a man after God's own heart, uh, look no further than the Psalms. And the Psalm we're going to look at today is Psalm 63. If you're able to stand, uh, let's stand now for the reading of God's word. You, God, are my God, and earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary. I have beheld your power and your glory. And because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name... I will lift up my hands, and I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I will remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is God's word. You can be seated. A lot of context here. In fact, uh, the Psalms provide the context a lot of times. If you just... Look right under uh, the heading, Psalm 63. My Bible says, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. I'm pretty confident of the season in which David wrote this psalm. In fact, uh, let me just show you a little bit where, where, where David uh, was, was born. Anybody know the city? Bethlehem, city of David. Um, and so I'll take just a little PowerPoint if you have it. It's kind of clear, isn't it? Now look closely at this, okay? 
uh, because you're looking at a region very close to Bethlehem today. Bethlehem's a big metropolis, but this is very close. And if you look, you can see, uh, first of all, the Dead Sea way out there. So we're looking east from the land of Israel. And you can see two kinds of land, can't you? What kind of land can you see? You see farmland, can you see it? Right down here, and that's where the town is. Uh, And then beyond the farmland, going to the Dead Sea, what's that? That's desert. Okay, this is why the Bible is called the land of milk and honey. I don't know if you ever understood what the Bible means when it calls Israel the land of milk and honey. Uh, The land of honey is the land of the farmer. And that's where uh, the farmer grows things. Uh, and, and produces uh, fruit and vegetables, olives, and, and all that sort of thing. The land of milk is that other piece of land, the desert. And you say, how is that the land of milk? Because that's the land of the shepherd. That is where the shepherd shepherds the sheep. And I know what you're thinking right now. Uh, like, what do they eat? Um, but there, you're getting closer. No, those are not rock-eating sheep. Uh, those are what the Bible calls green pastures. And if you look closely, uh, not clear enough, but maybe you can see some lines on the hills. Those are the paths. The Bible calls those the right paths. And uh, so go back to that first slide David lives in Bethlehem. But the place where David shepherds the sheep is in that desert. Now, why do I say all of this? Well, after David defeats Goliath, he goes from being this unknown shepherd to a national hero. In fact, Saul's going to make him a big-time general in his army. Uh, He's even going to give him his daughter, uh, so David is, is, is now married into royalty. Uh, the ladies are, are singing the little uh, ditty in the streets. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And then all of a sudden it all changes. Because King Saul, as we looked at last week, gets intensely jealous of David. And in a moment... His life of triumph is turned into tragedy. He goes from being on top of the world to hitting rock bottom. For what? For an act of obedience. And so now David has to run, and David runs to the place that he knows. He runs to the desert. The desert is his playground. He knows every nook and cranny, every cave, Every watering hole, because this is where he has spent his whole childhood as a kid shepherding sheep. Now for the next season of David's life, in fact the rabbis say this season of David's life where he is running from Saul is 40 months. And they say 40 because Moses spent 40 years in the desert. God's people spent 40 years in the desert. They say 40 is the number of testing and preparation. Jesus will spend 40 days in the desert. What I want to show you now from the text, go to 1 Samuel 19. Pick up 
Because I want you to feel what's going on in David's life in this season. And I don't have time to just read this in detail, but let's start with the last clause of verse 9. David is in Saul's courts. He's a musician. He's playing the lyre. It says, while David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul tried to drive the spear into the wall. That night, David made good on his escape. In that moment, David just lost his job. He just lost his place. In Saul's army, he lost his place. In Saul's courts, he lost it. Next verse, verse 11. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it so he could kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and David fled and escaped. David just lost his wife, his home, his family. Now, one thing that David has in his life that is a, a, a foundation is this friendship with Jonathan that actually brackets in the text this whole season. It, it, it's, it's a friendship that literally covers him. If you read uh, the details of this friendship, I mean, it's just one of the most beautiful friendships in the Bible. Um, Jonathan is, is giving up his very life to protect David, and David knows it. David knows that Jonathan has his back, that Jonathan is committed to him at all costs. And, 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 and here's why this friendship is so beautiful. Because Jonathan is the prince. He is the heir apparent to the throne. And yet he knows that David has replaced him in that. And so Jonathan really should be just as jealous as Saul. Jonathan should be just as threatened as Saul. But Jonathan loves David. And he trusts God. And he lays his life down for David. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. That is Jonathan. And that is the the. the Thread that runs through uh, this season of David's life, except when you get to 1 Samuel 20. Turn there. Verse 40 and 41 and 42. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the Stone, and he bowed, bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. And then they kissed each other and they wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. Now David loses really the only foundation stone in his life, his best friend, Jonathan. Every prop 
has been removed from his life. Every foundation stone. He's alone. He's in the desert. He's running for his life. David's life couldn't get any worse than this. And I was thinking about this. Um, an unknown author writes it. Um, it goes like this. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man, the world should be amazed. They should watch God's methods and watch his ways. How God ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into shapes and forms of clay which only God can understand. While man's tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, yet God bends but never breaks when men's good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with mighty power infuses him with every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. In other words, if you want a life that reflects the splendor of God, it will be shaped and formed in the crucible of suffering. And it's in this place where, in my opinion, David offers up the greatest prayer ever prayed. Oh God, you are my God. And earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. My body thirsts for you. In a dry and weary place where there is no water. I, mean, I, don't, I, I don't even know what to say. I know this about David. He's not perfect. He's far from perfect. He, he has enormous flaws in his life. But if you are wondering how, how, how God can say about this guy that he is a man after my own heart, look no further than Psalm 63. Because I think in these verses we are, we are scaling the peaks of what it means to be a Christian. It means that we have this passion. It means that we have this raw, burning love for God, that we love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. And here is David at, at a point in his life when, when he loses everything of earthly importance, he can still say, God, I passionately seek you. And when he, he's in this waterless dry desert. He says, my soul, it thirsts for you. And when his life has been emptied of every good thing, he says, my whole being longs for you. David loves God. And I really believe that, that, that without this passion and, and, and this kind of love for God, this whole Christian thing just becomes a heavy burden that we have to carry. It just becomes another set of moral prescriptions that we have to live by. Another set of things that we're obligated to. Are you carrying your faith or does your faith carry you? What are you passionate about? What do you desire? What do you hunger for? 
See, our appetites and, and, our, and our wants and our desires, they are powerful forces that will dictate the direction of our lives. They will. So I come to this place in the Bible, looking at this man, praying this prayer. And my, my heart says, ha, how do I get that love? How do I get that passion? I think there are four things in this psalm that speak to how we can have David-like love for God, David-like passion for God. And it starts with this. If we're going to have David-like love for God, it's going it's to require the desert. I know right now it's like that's not what you want to hear. And when the Bible speaks of desert, the desert biblically is more than just a a place. It's, it's when life is hard. It's, it's when life hurts. It's when we're stripped of our comforts and, and diversions and pleasures. It's when we lose things that are precious to us. And, and it's really this place where we find out who we really are. We, we find out what we really trust. We find out what we really love. We find out uh, what we really worship. That's why I'm convinced that the desert is the only place where David could write a psalm like this or pray this kind of prayer because how do I really know if, if, if God is really my God? Like, how do I really know if, if, if I earnestly seek God or I just seek God's gifts? I think it's so easy for us to confuse our love for God and, and love for God's gifts. And see, only the desert will, will show us when the desires of our heart are, are, are ripped away, we, we find out what our heart really desires. And that's why the, the, the desert is a gift. And some of you are there today. Some of you are, are, are in a season where precious things are being ripped out. I already had the most amazing gift given to me this morning. Because I forgot to put my microphone on, and in the second verse of It Is Well With My Soul, I walked right down this aisle, and Mark Sigman reached out. His wife, Cindy, has terminal cancer. And they are saying thank you to me. I don't know why. Because I say thank you to you. And for Cindy to say to me, this is the song of my heart. It is well with my soul. That's real. This week I did a funeral for a guy. His, his, his brother and best friend and business partner for 30 years died at a young age. The desert in this room right now, if we could know what it was, what it is, what people are going through right now, it would be enormous. Because life will include desert. The question is, what are we going to do with the desert? And when we're in the desert, do we have the resources to even handle the desert? And will the desert make us or break us? Will it make us better or will it make us bitter? In fact, uh, the root word uh, for desert in, in Hebrew, and I, we, we've talked about this before, uh, it's also the same root for holy of holies. And so what the rabbis do is they, 
they then put those, those concepts together uh, that the desert is also the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells. That God is, is, is most present when we're in the desert. And we see this in the biblical story. The deeper God's people uh, go into the desert, the more intense is their experience of God to the point where water is running out of rocks and, and manna is falling from heaven. And, and, and the desert becomes that place where it, it feels like we have nothing, but it's also the place where we can learn that we lack nothing. Because God is with us. This is what David says. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow, you, God, you are with me. If we're to have a passion for God, there's going to be desert. And we need to learn to turn to God like David does in Psalm 63. God, I thirst for you. I hunger for you. I long for you. Second, to have a David-like passion for God. Look at verse 1. First thing he says, Oh God, you are my God. Right, this is, an, imperson- this is a, 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 an intensely personal statement about God. He's not saying, Oh God, you are my parents' God, or Oh God, you are my pastor's God, or Oh God, you are my spouse's God. He's saying, God, you are, you are my God. God must be my God. And see, oftentimes we, we, we think that people seek God because they don't know him, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we actually seek God because we do know him. But what I think David is experiencing in this place in his life is, is, is God's absence. He's sensing God's distance. And as David is, is feeling God's a- absence and distance... He's crying out this prayer. Some of you are here today in this spot. In fact, some of you might feel really spiritually dry right now uh, to the point that when you read this psalm, it's like, I can't even relate to this. Some of you right now might even be remembering times in your life when you actually could pray this prayer, but right now you can't pray, pray this prayer. And, 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 and for some of you, it, it almost brings tears to your eyes as you think about those times when, when you sense God's closeness and nearness and his presence in your life in such profound ways. And right now, you're not sensing it. And David's doing the same thing. I mean, he says in, in, in verse 6, he says, how I remember. He's, he, he, he's thinking back to those times when, when, when God felt so close. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 42, a very similar psalm, says, as, as a deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul longs for you. And then he goes into this whole thing of how I remember those days when I'd be in the courts of God praising you. I want you to know something. Sensing God's absence is actually a sign of God's presence. It's a sign that you actually know God and that you love him. Because think about this. Have you ever been far away from home when you've been really homesick? That's what David is right now. He feels so far from God, but he's, he's homesick for God. 
And the people I'd be most concerned about today are not those who sense God's absence or, or God's distance or, or even feel what David expresses in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are not the people I'm concerned about. The people I'm most concerned about are those who are indifferent to God, who are indifferent to God's presence and his absence. People who never miss him or long for him. If that's you, I I would say you probably have never drunk deeply of God. Because to know him is to love him, and to love him is to want more of him, to hunger and thirst for him. And that's David. In fact, David, what he's doing in this psalm, look at verses 2 and 3. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. He's bringing to mind all that he knows about God, his power, his glory, his his loving kindness. And I want you to know that these are, are, are things about God that you don't just learn from a textbook. They're not things that you just learn from a sermon or, or some lecture. David says, I've seen you. I've beheld you. And you guys know my love for the text. You know my conviction that for a person who has real knowledge of God, it cannot go around the scriptures. It's, it's going to go through the scriptures. It starts with scriptures. But what we know about God must become personal and existential. In fact, Hebrew has a specific word for, for this kind of knowing. It's, it's yada. It's where we get yada, yada, yada. Um, it, it's this specific kind of knowing. Yad, the root, is from hand. And so it, it's knowledge that comes through touch. It's the specific kind of knowing that comes through the personal experience of that thing. That's why Yada is even used. Adam knew Eve and begat Cain. It's knowledge that intimate. And see, all of us were made to know God, not just know about him, but to yada him. That's why God, Jesus, the Psalms speak of sensory language about God. Taste and see, says David, that the Lord is good. So that when David in these verses is speaking about God's power and God's glory, these aren't just theological concepts to him. These are things that David knows personally. He personally knows the power of God. He personally knows the the glory of God. He talks about it in the Psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day they pour forth speech. If you want passion for God, David-like hunger and thirst and love for God, it's going to happen through Yada. In fact, in verse 3, talking about God's love, um, in fact, that word in Hebrew is hased. This, this is David's favorite word to describe God. And we don't really have an English word that can even come close to translating it, which is why we use words like mercy, grace, loving kindness, steadfast love. But the best way for me to just kind of sum up what has said means is it's God's immovable, 
unchanging, unconditional, unmerited love. It's God saying, I love you because I love you because I love you. It's that kind of love. And David says, I personally know that love. And that love is better than life itself. Can you say that today? And here we are on, on this side of God making himself known through Jesus. And, and think about the power and the glory and the said that God has demonstrated in Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Christ, he says, I love you because I love you because I love you. Do you know that? And see, when we, we, when we know that, not just know about it, but we personally yada it. This is why Paul says things in the New Testament like, everything I possess, it's rubbish. It's rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Finally, if you want to love God, if you want to crave God, become a worshiper. And worship is one of those things that's, that's both cause and effect. We, we worship God because we crave him, but also worshiping him causes us to crave him even more. What worship does is it translates our pain into praise. It translates our hurt into hunger for God. And worship isn't just attending church. Worship isn't just singing a few songs. In fact, in Hebrew, the word for worship and the word for work are the same thing, avodah. Because what worship is, is it's a total heart and life response to who God is. And that's why two of the most important words, or word, that's used two times in this psalm, is the word because. Look at verse 3. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Verse 7. Because you are my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. Every facet of David's being is in response to who God is and what he knows God to be. He talks about my soul, my body, my lips, my hands, my mouth, my mind. It's all given to praising God. And this is at a time in his life where he has lost everything. But he can still say, God, you are my everything. And then he can say in verse 5, look at it. My soul, my life is satisfied with the richest of foods. Can you say that today? We need to stop asking that people and things satisfy souls that are made for God. Augustine said it so well. God made us for, for himself and our souls are restless until they rest in him. And there is something that will completely ruin our appetite for God, our passion for him. My kids, when they were really young, their, their, their worldview really was summed up in one word, candy. 
And parents, you know the deal. That's why you're laughing. Here's the deal. As good as candy tastes, it, it ruins our appetite for what our body really needs. In the same way, any substitute for God, although it might taste good, whatever form it takes, it's going to ruin our appetite for God. In other words, we will never hunger and thirst for God using substitutes to remedy what our souls have been made to crave, which is God. And if you want to know why David is a man after God's own heart, why David is a mighty man for God, it's because he is a man who can say, Oh God, you are my God. And earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. And my body thirsts for you. In a dry and weary place where there is no water. I don't know what God's saying to you today. Maybe that you've been hanging around him your whole life, but maybe now it's time to get to know him. Or maybe there's so many substitutes that you've filled your life with that's just killing this hunger and this passion for God, the thing your soul craves for. My father-in-law, who knows Billy Graham, once asked Billy Graham this question. He said, What is the most satisfying thing, Billy, that you've ever done? And Billy Graham said, nothing more satisfying in my life than walking with Jesus. And God's invitation to us, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you are, I don't care what you've been. Isaiah 55, God says, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor and what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear, says God, and come to me that your soul may live. And Jesus put flesh and blood on this invitation. And he said, those waters are me. I am real food. I am real drink. And I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone would let me in, we'll come and eat together. For some reason this morning, God just led me to have the communion table here because this is the meal that God offers us. It's more than a meal. It's real food. It's food that satisfies our soul because God doesn't want us to just know about him. God wants us to take him into the center of our soul. But listen, this communion is not for everybody. Please, I can't serve everybody. This communion today is for the few of you who are in an intense desert. And you want them because you need them. And you're so sick of turning to all the substitutes that this world offers that don't satisfy. And God's putting his finger on your life right now. And he's saying, come to me. For all of us, I just want to end with this prayer from A.W. Tozer. It's a prayer that my college pastor, Jerry Root, taught me to pray when I was in college. Please pray with me. 
Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness. And it has both satisfied me and yet made me thirsty for more. I'm ashamed, God, of my lack of desire. Oh God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty. Show me your glory, I pray, that I may know you. Begin a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my child, and come to me. And then give me grace to rise and follow you from this misty lowland where I've wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen.